Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvot Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. We are located at the corner of Boulevard and Grove, across from the Art Museum. For more information, you can visit our website at tikvotisrael.com. There, you can support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and contact us with any questions or comments. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. In any narrative, there are certain elements which are usually present. You have setting, character, plot, conflict, and resolution. On this day, the celebration of the Torah, we are starting over in our reading. Did you notice that? With what book? Genesis. This foundational text contains the building blocks for the whole rest of the story of Adam, that is, humanity. It explains all of these narrative elements in the first few chapters. It lays out setting, where we are, character, who we are, plot, what we're supposed to do, conflict, the basic obstacle that's preventing us from doing what we're supposed to do, and resolution, the solution to the conflict. The setting is the background of the story. The creation set up with humans and their creator to be the main characters. Humankind is created on the sixth day, the pinnacle of God's creative work. During the previous five days, God sets up the background, the setting, with definition and distinction and identity boundaries, meaning. The setting before the creation is not described as nothingness per se, but it's the emptiness of chaos, if that can be understood, from which God then brings order, definition, separation, and identity. So this is what it says in Genesis 1 verse 2, the second verse of the Torah. The earth was unformed and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the water. The words unformed and void in Hebrew are a really nice uh, poetic phrase. It's tohu vavohu. Can we try that? Tohu vavohu, yes. So this can be translated as uh, unformed and void, or sometimes perhaps waste and wild. Uh, The first word, tohu, it means desolation, chaos, emptiness, meaninglessness, confusion, and disorder. So this is a world without definition or identity. There's no trees or rocks or oceans or land or animals or people, just meaningless definitionless chaos. And there's no thing that is defined or distinct from any other thing, right? It's sort of hard to, to, to grasp, but this is what the idea that the biblical writers are trying to put forth, okay? And then from that, God created definition, separating and defining identity. This 
over here. This is the land. And it only goes up to here. And this part is the sea. And it can only come up to this point. This, there is the beautiful diversity of animals which reproduce after their own kind, according to their unique identity. That is, if you have a bird, is not going to reproduce into a whale, for example, right? We understand that? And, uh, and this is the week given for the creative work. This is, and then there is Shabbat. So God is separating them. He's saying, this is the work week. This is Shabbat. I'm going to rest on this day. Each distinct piece of creation is designed with a unique identity, creating a beautiful unity of diversity. A unity of diversity. And this gives us one of the cornerstones of Messianic Jewish theology, distinction and mutual blessing. Each unique piece of creation is a blessing to the rest of creation out of a unique defined identity, the land and the sea, right? They're distinct. They bless each other. The work week and Shabbat. He creates male and female in the union of marriage, right? So there's, there's a unity there, but there's a diversity, a distinction of identity between the man and the woman in the first marriage. And eventually in Genesis 12, we're set up for Israel and the nations, There's a diversity within a unity, a working together harmony out of distinction. And all of these identities, including ours today, they ultimately come from the creator, father, God. He gives us our identity. He made everything. He can tell us who we are. And thus we have the setting of Genesis and a little bit of the characters, right? The identity. So now we're going to move forward through character and plot. That could be seen as the identity and purpose of humanity. The character part of the narrative is seen as our identity. So identity is who we are. Identity formation is fundamental to our story in this world. Think about the very fact for a moment that you are, that you exist, right? This is kind of mind-blowing, right? How is it that you, you, Lloyd, are a person with a soul? How is that? Isn't that incredible? Who are we? Why are we here? The first question should lead to the second, and they're both addressed in Genesis. Once we know who we are, then we can do what we are supposed to do. First, character, then plot. Identity, then calling. This is the order in the scripture. So Bereshit, or Genesis, describes humanity, Adam, in our identity, and then our calling. Who we are, and then what we're supposed to do in that order. Let's take a look, all right? So Genesis 1, 26 through 28 reads like this. Then God said, let's read it together, let us make humankind in our image, in the likeness of ourselves, and let them rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the animals, and over all the earth, and over every crawling creature that crawls on the earth. So God created humankind in his 
image, his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them. God said to them, what? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, and every living creature that crawls on the earth. Right? Do we see the identity and the purpose both there? We can leave that up for a second. So first, we're made in God's image, right? So that, so that we can bring dominion over the rest of creation. The first is our identity, then our purpose. We were made to reflect God's image to the world. All of God's creation was called good, but only humanity is called very good. Tov me'od. That is part of our identity. We are good because we, have, we were made by a good father. And because we, unlike the animals, as Clarine read to us, we have the breath of life. And we are made to reflect God's image. As image bearers, God's goodness, his love, his kindness, his grace, his moral uprightness, his forgiveness is supposed to be reflected through us. This is kind of like how the moon reflects the brightness of the sun. You know, the moon doesn't give off any light of its own. It's only reflecting off of the sun. And so we too are supposed to be like that. The identity and calling is repeated in this text. It's, you see it twice, right? We're made in his image, therefore rule over the earth, right? We're made in his image, therefore be fruitful and multiply. So we're made in his image, right? But what does that mean? And we're, we're to be fruitful and multiply, and what does that mean? Well, the peshat or simple meaning of the text is just make some more people, right? But this has been interpreted and understood much deeper, much more profoundly, right, to, to discover our purpose. So I have five things that I've gotten out of this text that I think that this implies, that this means. Number one, we are to bring the knowledge and love of God throughout the earth. Number two, we are to bring all things in creation under dominion of the creator king. That is, God's kingdom is, is desiring to move over and have dominion over all the earth, and we are to usher that in. Number three, we are to steward or co-rule, in a sense, over the creation with God. We're, of course, the junior partners in this, but he has given us the creation to steward. Because we are image bearers of God, we are to also reflect his goodness and his compassion. And number five, we are to reflect his actions through our actions. We're made in his image. So we, such as procreation, he made us, in the, he created us, and he's given us to procreate, that is, partner with him to make new life, new life in the context of the intimacy of marriage. Also, he rested on Shabbat, so therefore we rest on Shabbat. And affirming the identity and goodness of creation, that's something that God did, and he wants us to do that as well. Whatever God does in the creation account, we are called to reflect that. God created life, we are called to procreate, right? God had loving dominion over creation, 
So we are given the rest of creation to steward and rule over with kindness, just like God did. God was a loving father to us, so we are called to be loving parents to our children, modeled after his love through us. God created definition, and so he gave to Adam the work of naming all the animals. Do we remember this? Right? What is naming? That is giving definition. Right? Giving identity to the rest of creation. God worked for six days and rested on Shabbat. And so the children of Adam were to work for six days and rest on Shabbat. We are to be like those little moons, right? Reflecting the goodness and the brightness of the sun, who is God. Does that make sense? So we have setting, we have character, and plot. But every narrative has a little something we call conflict. And this comes in very importantly in chapter 3 with the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But why the knowledge of good and evil? Well, up until chapter 3, God has defined that which is good and that which is not good. The creation is what? It's good. God says it's good. The animals are good. The people, Adam, Adam, and Chava, they are very good. It is not good for the man to be alone. So God is now defining something that is not good, right? It's not good for us to be alone or without community. These are all values and identities given directly by God. But now the people have the opportunity to either accept and reflect God's rulership as the decider of good and evil, or we can redefine it for ourselves. And we could say, well, no, I don't think that's good. I think this is good, and I think that's evil, right? And as the serpent puts it, when they eat the fruit, they will be like God. They will be like God. But wait a moment. I thought we were supposed to be like God. Wasn't that our purpose, right? The plot, uh, the plot of the characters, right? We're supposed to be like God in that we reflect his goodness, but that wasn't enough. It was not enough for Adam and Chava. They wanted to be like God in another way, in authority. They didn't want to be junior partners. They didn't want to be little moons. They wanted to be the sun, the source, the decider of good and evil, the judge. They wanted to decide what was good and evil on their own terms. And before, before this, they were described as naked and unashamed. Now, in chapter 3, they realize they're naked and they are vulnerable. And so they try to cover themselves up with a fig leaf and they hide from the presence of God, as Larry shared with us. Shame. Shame causes us to try to hide from God as if we could. To run from our identity and our calling and to try to cover up our mistakes and our sins. That, the, the thing you told us not to do, that thing, the thing that, uh, where we tried to usurp your authority so I could call good evil and evil good, uh, that thing, yeah, yeah I, I didn't do that. I, I didn't eat that fruit, right? You must be thinking of another Adam and Eve, you know, over there in the next garden, right? That's what we're trying, we're trying to hide, Cover up as if, as if that would uh, fool the Lord. And then from this, from this moment, we have the first marital 
arguments. Those of you who are married should take note, or really anyone. This is, this is really, really crucial. So God confronts Adam in Genesis 3, verses 11 through 12. He says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I ordered you not to eat? And the man replied, I love this, The woman, the woman that you gave me to be with, she gave me fruit from the tree, and, and, you know, I ate. Look at the structure of this sentence. This is the same structure as in the original Hebrew, right? I ate the admission of guilt. Where is that? It's at the very end, you know? And the first words are, the woman. And it's not just the woman. It's you, Lord, because you gave me the woman. The woman you gave me, so it's her fault and it's your fault. And then, you know, of course, I ate. Okay, right? And, then, and so God then addresses the woman. And Adonai, God, says to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent. The serpent tricked me. And then I ate. Right? I ate. Again, at the end of the sentence, fronted by the serpent. Wasn't me, Lord. It was the serpent that deceived me and caused me to stumble. And then, you know, I ate. Shame has led to blame. Hiding from God. And the first marital argument. This is the prototype of all marital arguments ever since. Not to mention the entrance of sin and murder and death. So what becomes of our character and our plot, our identity and our calling? Are they forever gone? Obliterated by this this intense conflict brought on by our own sins, our own choices. Well... In Genesis 19 through 21, we're going to catch the tail end of the consequences of these actions. And it's followed by a thread. And that is a thread of God's resolution to the problem. Remember, every story has a resolution. This is what he says. You will eat bread by the sweat of your forehead till you return to the ground, for you were taken out of it. You are dust, and you will return to dust. So the man called his wife Chava, which is related to the word Chai, or Chaim, which means what? Life. Life. Because she was the mother mother of all living. Adonai, God, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Wait a minute. Chava, or Eve, this means, it means life, right? This is the name given to the woman who just brought death into the world, right? God just told them they would return to dust and no longer live forever, no longer eat from the tree of life. So shouldn't Adam have said, hey, uh, I'd like to introduce you to my wife. This is my wife named Death. Uh, She just brought uh, death into the world, uh, eating the fruit, and then she gave it to me. So it was really her fault. But yes, uh, let's, uh, nice nice to meet you. No, he didn't say that, right? He said, this is my wife, Chava, this is life. Our names, our names, that is our identities, they ultimately come from God. And our identity and our calling that flows from our identity are irrevocable. Despite our mistakes, even if it's the first sin that leads to all other sins, we humans, 
have an irrevocable, cannot be taken back, identity and calling to reflect God's goodness. And God's goodness is life. And then that is the name and the identity of Chava or Eve. She is life because God made her with that identity. He gave her that name. She is life, right? And then the next verse, it says God clothes them. He has something better, better than the fig leaf. They, remember they use that to try to cover themselves up, right? But he provides for them even when they're ashamed. And if this was the skin of an animal, which most scholars think, it foreshadows the sacrificial system by which our mistakes are covered for. It's, it's a literal covering, right? And that, in the, in the Hebrew, that is what? That's atonement. That's atonement. Sacrifice and atonement that God provides to cover, to atone for our sins. There's another thread of resolution in the narrative. A few verses back, which we have not mentioned. This is in Genesis 3, 14 through 15, when God addresses the serpent. Adonai, God, said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and eat dust as long as you live. I will put animosity between you and the woman, between your descendant and her descendant. Or uh, literally in Hebrew is, is the word seed. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Rabbis have traditionally read this as the first prophecy about the Messiah. There's a descendant of Adam and Chava who will crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent will crush the heel of that descendant. Through some kind of wounding, the descendant will prevail over the force of evil that caused Adam and Eve to sin. He will resolve that conflict at some point by his own suffering. Notice this also in the last part of the story of chapter 3, where they are leaving the garden. So he, that is God, drove the man out, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden the cherubim, that's cherubim, and, the flaming, and a flaming sword, which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So the cherubim, or the, the cherubim in Hebrew, they guarded the way back to the presence of God, back to the tree of life. There were two cherubim somewhere else in Scripture. Where were they? They were on the Ark of the Covenant, the center of the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was to dwell among Israel. Clearly, God is continually resolving the conflict throughout Scriptures up until the present day. We could read this story and see only the tragic fracture of our relationship with God and with each other. But then we would miss this thread, the thread of the resolution, the thread of grace. Chava is still the mother of life. God is still seeking to dwell among us. He covers us in our nakedness even when we mess up really badly. And someday, the son of Adam, 
will crush the head of the serpent and restore us completely. The narrative continues with the children of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. The first murder occurs out of jealousy and anger. And, but this is really a consequence of what Adam, Adam, and Chava did. I mean, they should have known better, really, but that's what happens when you are raising Cain. And as for Cain, God tells him he could actually rule over his sin, but you know, he just wasn't able. Thank you, that's all my time. Humanity seems to take a downward spiral from here, but there's always glimmers. There's that thread of hope. Cain is marked by God for protection from murdering, for murdering his brother so that no one will avenge his death, so no one will kill him. So there's, there's some grace. But then his descendant, Lamech, is the first person mentioned to acquire more than one wife. Not a good plan, right? And then he brags. He brags about murdering a man and takes on the oath, uh, the, the mark of Cain, and says, if he was avenged seven times, I shall be avenged seven times, 70 times seven. Like, I'm invincible, right? Um, but then, on the other hand, we see that this is a time when people start to call on the name of the Lord, that is, to worship God. And then, also, on the good side, we see Enoch, um, he never actually died because he was so close to God. He walked with God so close, um, just as in the garden, that one day he was just taken up. He was walking with God and taken up, just like Elijah the prophet was a little bit later. And the end of this week's Parsha uh, reads like this. This is Genesis 6, verses 5 through 8. Adonai saw that the people on earth were very wicked, that all the imaginings of their hearts were always of evil only. Adonai regretted that he had made humankind on the earth. It grieved his heart. Adonai said, I will wipe out humankind, whom I have created, from the whole earth, not only human beings, but animals, creeping things, and birds in the air, for I regret, I regret that I ever made them. But Noah, Noah, found grace in the sight of Adonai. Again, the conflict is increasing but God's grace, that thread, is still there for those who trust in him. The problem of sin, the conflict, it grieves the Lord. It grieves him. The wickedness and rebellion of the sons of Adam and Chava, it hurts the Lord's heart. It does. But there's that thread of grace and that redemption always there, always there. And next week's Parsha takes us through the flood, right? And the Tower of Babel, which I've talked about before. But the unveiling of God's plan to resolve the problem of the fruit, it really gets going in Genesis 12, the third Parsha, with the calling and the covenant with Avraham, the father of the Jewish people. The election of Israel is central to God's redemptive plan. But that's another Parsha, perhaps another sermon. So what do we see from this foundational text? The first few pages of our origins as humans. We see our identity firmly 
rooted in God, being our Father and our Creator, making us in His image to reflect His goodness on the earth. And we see our calling, which is the plot of the whole story, giving us purpose. He gives us purpose to bring His goodness and to co-rule the creation under the authority and rulership of God. And our identity pushes us toward our calling. If we know who we are, that we are loved, we are loved, we are loved by our Father, the Creator, we will be empowered to do what we are called to do. And we see the conflict, the sin problem, which, try as it might, to try to get us to blame and kill and hate each other, it cannot efface our identity in God and our irrevocable calling. And we see threads of God's redemptive plan to solve the sin problem by sending the son of Adam, the Messiah, by constantly extending his grace and by drawing us back to his presence and by calling out the nation of Israel to be his people as part of his redemptive plan. I'd like to end with a quote from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 26, which I believe, I think it sums up his redemptive plan. And it compares Adam and the consequence of, of death because of that choice to his descendant, Yeshua, who rose from the dead. This is what it says. Perhaps we can read it together. But the fact is that the Messiah has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a man, also the resurrection of the dead has come through a man. For just as in connection with Adam all die, so in connection with the Messiah all will be made alive. But each in his own order. The Messiah is the first fruits, then those who belong to the Messiah at the time of his coming. Then the culmination, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after having put an end to every rulership, yes, to every authority and power, for he has to rule until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be done away with will be death. Amen. Does this give us hope? Yes, our hope is in the Messiah, who is the mirror opposite of Adam, and yet even greater, right? Because Scripture says that if death came through one man, one man's choice, right? Even though he blamed the woman, right? Then how much more will life come through Yeshua, the Messiah, the Redeemer? Amen? All right.